0: Hello, listener. Thanks for tuning into the Future Foundations podcast. My name is James Patrick McHugh, and today I'm sitting down with Sam Marlich of NextVenture.co. Sam's a graduate from the University of Waikato in New Zealand, where he got his bachelor's in communications, creative media, and
1: creative technologies.
0: Sam, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today with NextVenture.co.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um to give a, a really quick rundown on myself and where I come from, uh, I was born in a town uh, in New Zealand called Hamilton, which is where the University of Waikato is, which is why I went there. Um, and when I started, you know, when I went to university, when I grew up, I wanted to work in advertising. So my goal was I wanted to become a creative director. So that's the person who kind of comes up with the creative vision of how an advertisement looks. Um, you know, when I went to university, I did a conjoint degree. So I did a degree in uh, communications, majoring in marketing, and then creative and media technology. So that was kind of my original vision when I was 17. Um, What I realized quite quickly is A, the advertising industry um, was one that I think was really great to join 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but it kind of sucks today. It's been essentially conglomeratized and it's a low paying job where you don't really get any creative freedom and, you know, I mean, we've all seen modern advertising. It sucks. It's not interesting. All the good stuff seems to be 20, 30, 40 years ago where you could actually be creative. Um, the other thing that I realized is that I am not particularly talented creatively. So I feel like for an amateur, I'm okay, but I looked at the people around me and I just thought you guys are so much better at this, you know, kind of creative thinking. You guys enjoy it a lot more. Um, this is not right for me. I did work at an ad agency part-time while I was at university um, where I found out about the account side, right? So if you think about, if you've seen Mad Men, like Don Draper is an accounts person at an agency and, and accounts, that's not the accounting department, that is the sales department, right? That is really client management. And so I I did think about kind of getting into that. Um, but the other thing that i had been really interested in, you know, for a very long time, but been a Twitter lurker, uh, a lurker on Twitter for years and years. And I really started following Silicon Valley quite closely. Um, you know, probably back in like 2011, 2012, I, you know, I've been on Twitter for years and years and, um, I was just following what was happening in Silicon Valley. And that was always quite interesting to me as well. Um, so I, I found out about this organization in, um, in San Francisco at the time called Kiwi Landing Pad. Now what Kiwi Landing Pad is is it was a space, it's a physical space in downtown San Francisco, um where New Zealand companies would essentially it was a co-working space, right? Where they would work out of where they would network together and right. where they would kind of like expand into the US. But so it was targeted out, what's that you, you said for?
0: it was targeted towards New Zealand nationals in San Francisco though?
1: That's right, yeah. So it right. was like set up by a bunch of Kiwis. Um and you know it was very much like uh like arranged around that. Right. So, I mean, you know, um, it it wasn't super exclusive, but that was kind of the way it was set up. Um, sure. I thought this was a really big organization. Um, so one of the kind of brainwaves that I had that would have been 21 or 22 at the time was if I go and fly over to San Francisco, then they'll definitely have to meet with me. Right. Um, so, so that's what I did. I'd won a, a summer research scholarship, which gave me $5,000. Um, I plowed that into a round-the-world trip. I went to London, I went to Iceland, I went to Boston, New York, and San Francisco. Just a lot of fun. Uh, but then when I was in San Francisco, I met two or three people. Um, so I went to this and then, um, that's kind of how I like, I guess I broke in, was I did some cold outreach as I think most people do, but I also took some pretty big action. Um, a couple months later, like Kiwi Landing Pad had this uh, event back in New Zealand where, essentially they brought over like half a dozen executives who had worked in the startup world and they were bringing back the knowledge, right? I think if we look around today, there's a lot of information on how to build a SaaS company, how to get ahead in your career, understanding sales. Like This stuff is actually pretty new, right? Like even 10 years ago, this world was a lot less legible than it is today. Um, and so what they would do is they would bring over, you know, these executives from Silicon Valley who would talk about the, you know, the best way to to grow your startup and and kind of the uh, the the cutting edge of of what the Americans were doing, right? Because frankly, like especially at that time, technology was still so driven out of out of the U.S. and this is 2015. Um, so I went to that. You know, they had a they, they did like a national essentially like road trip. They went to four or five locations. I went to one of them. Again, like just continued to build my network. Um, around that time, I found out about this one-year visa. It's called a J-1 um, visa. It's essentially a work. Um, it's like a cultural exchange visa, and so you do the J-1. It, it's really like rubber stamped. You you know you can get it very very easily, but you have to have graduated um, within the last year. So if you're from Australia, I think uh, Australia, New Zealand, I think the Irish have it. I don't know what other countries, but like it's really really easy to get, right? Um, And what a lot of people do with those visas is they go and work at Disneyland. They go and work in like on the mountains. They go and work in these summer camps. So that's how people come over and that you know, they do nannying. Like that's, that's the visa that they come over on. But you can actually work anywhere in the United States. Um, There was another guy I went to high school with whose name was also Sam. He did a J1 visa. He worked at Disneyland. He now lives in Florida because he ended up marrying a girl that Mm -hmm. he worked with while he was at Disneyland. So like, you know, this is like how people emigrate. Right.
0: It's a path to citizenship that allows you to not just be here to work or to go to school, but then to also experience the country a little bit and decide if you want to live
1: there permanently. Yeah, it, it like it is. But I think the other thing, you know, if you're Australian, it's really easy to stay in the U.S. If you're from New Zealand, it's actually extremely difficult. Um, and every, you know, every New Zealander that you, you meet uh, in, in the U.S. will have like some – uh, degree of like familiarity with the uh, the immigration process because it's it's actually quite interesting like you would think they are like the same country and I think a lot of people kind of like group them as the same country but from an immigration point of view they're extremely different and I think um, it's worth remembering that just in general like you know you might think that, that two people have like very similar backgrounds actually often their experiences can be very very vastly different um, which is something I run into all the time re- recruiting people
0: yeah i uh I'm frequently struck when I notice just difference is in the laws between like state borders you know right. so it's it's surprising to me that um people overlook because yours isn't a provincial line it's a it's a national border and so yeah. I, I kind of get where you're coming from that people lump it continentally very close or geographically close together but i I do get struck pretty frequently by how diverse the rules can be just across one borderline.
1: I'll Um, I'll give you like, I'll give you a really interesting example of that, like in my world, right. And in the world of recruiting, um, if you talk to a lot of people in New York in these like very high up finance jobs, or, you know, people in these like various professional services, if you work at like a major art auction house, or if you work at a hedge fund or, or, you know, that sort of thing, it is not uncommon to have like a year long or two year long non-compete agreement where Mm -hmm. the company that you work for will pay you out at like 70 or 80 percent of your income um but you're not allowed to work right you go on gardening leave that is really not a thing in california right like you cannot enforce a non-compete in california so um essentially like anything you see around a non-compete is are you actively stealing secrets from the company Um, outside of that like it is virtually impossible to enforce a non-compete. My understanding is it's actually um, the reason that California is kind of an outlier on this is because a lot of California law is actually based on Spanish law because California used to be part of Mexico. Mexico is, you know, like was colonized by the Spanish. Um, So one of those things where you're like, Oh, that's really weird. But actually that is one of the things that people look to and they say, Oh, why did Silicon Valley end up in like in the bay area Mm -hmm. well actually part of it is because of regulation it's the same reason that the film industry is in la right it's like thomas edison was trying to enforce patents on the film industry i don't know if you've heard the story but he's trying to like enforce these patents on the film industry and you know he had new york and and, like the tri-state area under his like control so they all pissed off to to la <laughs> where, where he he didn't have the influence,
0: right? That I didn't realize that that was the driving force behind Hollywoodland. That's that's really cool. Um, yep. I, I I recognize like you know when you get to New England, that's almost all off of English like Admiralty kind of law. But I didn't realize that the Spanish influence was what was driving the creative arts and then the technologies sectors to the West Coast. Um, You've mentioned, and I know we both are aware of what SaaS is, obviously you work in that industry, Um, but just in case we missed anybody along the way so far, SaaS stands for software as a service. Do you want to talk a little bit about why, since you said it's a budding industry still, uh, you picked that kind of corner to get into and and build?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The way to think about software as a service is it is... It's essentially a website that you pay a subscription to access to, right? So you can think of Netflix as a, a SaaS product. Um, right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't fall under, you know, a, a lot of the way that a lot of people think about um, SaaS. But you know, in general, I think a good way to think about what is software as a service. Let's take it back a couple of layers, right? I think when a lot of us think about software. We're thinking about Facebook we're thinking about Instagram, we're thinking about Netflix and, and maybe Amazon. Um, those are all very exciting you know consumer right. facing websites but um, you know the the world that I'm in it's very boring business to business enterprise software so it's helping companies do things like manage payroll. it's helping thing um, companies defend you know defend themselves from um, you know like cyber cyber attacks or, or hackers, it's helping companies, you know, manage their sales data, manage their, um, you know, manage their marketing data, manage their whatever data, frankly, right. manage their data pipelines. It's, um, you know, it, it's kind of like how can we make businesses more efficient from a, um, an administrative standpoint is probably where a lot of this software comes in. Um, one of the things I really like about the, the SaaS world, one of the things I really like about the enterprise software world is, frankly, it doesn't actually change that quickly, right? It's I, I like to say to people, if you started your career in 1980, there have really been three ideas um, that have led the entire industry since then. The first one was, we should get things on computers, right? That was the first thing. Okay. We're moving from typewriters, we're going to get things on to, onto computers. And, and actually we're going to give individuals computers because computers Just like are
0: digitizing.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then the next, you know, the next idea was we should connect all of those computers together. That's so
0: networking. Do. Okay. Right?
1: And and so like, if you think the eighties were about getting computers like together, you know, like getting people to have computers in their like office jobs, the nineties were about connecting those computers, early two thousands, like let's connect those computers. Let's have this digital revolution. And then call mm-hmm. it like, I don't know, late 2000s onwards, it's really been about instead of having, you know, that if you remember software like 20 years ago, you'd get a CD-ROM, you'd put it into your computer, you'd install it, you'd, you know, and then you'd start to run it. Now, I think for most of us, we get on the, we get on our computer and we're really just doing everything on the internet browser, right? Right. you you open up Spotify, you're actually just opening up an internet browser. You open up Slack, like you're actually just opening up an internet browser. Like everything we do now is all connected, right? And that's like this whole idea of cloud um, right. technology, which is essentially another way of saying, you know, again, when you used to run software, you used to run that software on your own computer at home. And now we run it on these massive data centers because our internet's so fast, we can do that and we can do it more efficiently. So, um, I'm sure no, some software engineers, great. some technical people are like, yeah. Sam is totally misrepresenting the actual details. But conceptually that's the world that we live in.
0: Yeah, days. no, I, I kinda see how that goes from the desktop suite to broadband to now cloud computing. Um they've outsourced the stuff that used to be you have to pack it into, you know, the miniaturized home computer. Now because we can just outsource that processing power to somewhere else, the the sales issue that these for lack of a better word, tech nerds, sorry, to all the tech nerds, Um, you know, the sales issue they run into is that they don't know how to communicate that if I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly. And so kind of your corner is that you come in and you place skilled communicators who can understand the, you know, the, the ins and outs of the one targeted API without necessarily knowing the coding itself, but they can learn the features, the use cases, et cetera. And then they can communicate on behalf of the coders who built the business, but don't know how to sell
1: it that yeah that's exactly right so one way to think about this right is you're at a business and you're an executive and you want to get an outcome done hey i want us to save everyone's email address who buys from our website right like we need to we need to have them and we need to put them into a marketing like we need to put them into a marketing sequence so that we can send them more emails right Mm -hmm. now if you're the executive whose job it is to improve sales right and it's your job to like. Build out that e- like e-commerce business. You probably don't know the exact method by which you know oh, someone's purchased, So we're going to take their email and like at this point we will put them into this sequence, right? And frankly, that's not your job. I think one of the one of the big issues that uh, engineers have, and engineers kind of have a few issues. The first one is they tend to get overly focused on the details, right? It's all about hey, this is the right solution. It's a great approach to engineering, but at the end of the day, if you're in business, you're like, I don't actually care. I'm mostly focused on the bigger picture. I'm focused on getting like this detail. Like, you know, that, that's a, that's the yeah. detail. Like I'm. They have the,
0: big picture vision to deal with. And then there's the day to day. Yeah. The rank exactly. and file. Exactly.
1: And Understood. so, you know, the, the job of your average account executive, and that's, that is the usual title is we've got account executives who sell software. It's their job to Really run a sales process, right? So it's their job to demo the software. It's their job to really manage the commercial side. Now, if you've got a more technical product, you might have what's called a sales engineer, and the sales engineer is really there um, to talk about all of those technical details. So they're the okay. ones, who, you know, so they're the ones who are talking to the engineers, and it's hey, does this integrate with this? You know, we've got this ERP, or we need this API, or we need this functionality like and they're the ones who are kind of like let's actually make sure that this makes sense right if you if you think about it if we can just you know butcher another analogy here um if you think about it like the salesperson is the guy who's selling you a new motor for your car and the engineer is the guy or the sales engineer is the guy who will talk to your mechanic and say yep we can probably actually match this engine with this transmission and it's not going to cause your car to blow up right right Actually, no, we shouldn't do that. So the way to think about it is like the sales engineer is there to do the technical like do or like handle the technical details, whereas the account executive handles the commercial details. I, the I, account I
0: executive can tell you it's a V8. The sales yeah. engineer can tell you how much heat it can take before the block cracks.
1: That That's exactly yeah. right.
0: Okay. Yeah. I want to make sure we're scaling it along the same lines. Okay, perfect. Um, so since you,
1: Yeah, go ahead. There is a point, right, where you are too technical for your own like for your own good. And I think that's one thing that engineers, you know, because a lot of founders of these companies do tend to be engineers. And right. um, one of the issues is okay, you have this great, you have this great tool. I, I feel like a lot of SaaS companies actually run into this problem. And and it's a problem we actually all run into, which is we overload on jargon. If I told you, oh, I can help you scale your go-to-market team by hiring AEs, well, if you don't. If you don't know what know an, what, an AE is. What a yeah. team is if you don't know what an a e is, I've just given you an indecipherable sentence, and it's actually really important to like scale back and say, "Oh, you're looking to hire for some salespeople who can do this. Yes, this is what their role is. This is what they look like. this is how we can find them. And so again, it's how can we remove the jargon from uh, from right. the industry is really important.
0: Well, here, can you clear up uh, some confusion I have potentially about jargon because there's there's a I've never been able to understand the difference between an account executive, a CRM, customer relations manager, and then a SDR, which is like um, a sales development representative. Are they all just mix-ups of the same role, given different titling to confuse?
1: No. Um, okay. Basically, you've got, you've got three different roles that are three different parts of the sales process. So if we, if, if we start at the very beginning, yeah. you, know, you and I, we don't know each other. Right? And we, before you can buy from me, we need to be introduced. Right, And so the SDR or the sales development rep, this is also called a business development rep, account development rep. If it has a DR on the back end, it's probably this exact role. Um, the sales development rep's job is to open up conversations. Right, It is to reach out to the world, be it through cold email, through cold calling, through you know, going to events, that sort of thing. It is okay. their job to open up opportunities, right? So it's, it's their job to say, hey, you're a IT manager at a Fortune 500 company. You're on our target account. You know, you're on our targeted accounts list. Does it make sense for us to talk about our new like device management platform, right? It's kind of
0: pre-disqualifying people who aren't even worth it as
1: a lead. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's you know, and, and like, if you're an account executive, your job probably does some of this as well. Okay, Um, but but that's like that's where the SDR comes in. Right. And the SDR job is really an entry level into sales role. Right. So that's it's usually you're 22 years old, you're 23 years old. You've just graduated college and you have fallen into sales because most people fall into sales, um, you know, and you are now like you are now on the phone, making 100 calls a day, trying to book 10 to 20 meetings per month. That is like that is the life of an SDR. Now, an account executive's job is to go from, sometimes the SDR handles that first call and their job is to qualify the company, right? So if you're a company of three people, probably don't have the budget to spend $50,000 a year on device management, right? Like, and when I say device management, think you're a company, you've got a whole lot of laptops, you've got a whole lot of cell phones, you've got a whole lot of tablets, right? And you want to keep track of them. You want to be able to know when they need to be fixed. You need to know when right. they've been replaced, and you want to make sure that they're not getting stolen, right? But a company of three people obviously is not going to want to spend fifty thousand dollars a year on this kind of solution. If you're a company that is the size of Amazon, fifty thousand dollars a year is is an absolute steal, right? <laughs> right? Um, and, and that's kind of you know the, the way to think about it. So the SDR's job is often to qualify um, opportunities, but it's really to open up that conversation. Now the account executive's job is to open up some conversations, but also it is to you know to take the ball from the SDR, um, from often what is like a discovery call, which is you know, understanding what the problem the prospect has, um, and taking them through to signing the contract, right? So it's okay, you know, let let's let's make sure you've got a problem. Let's demo the solution. Let's walk through the various buying. Parties that need to be involved at you know at your company, and then let's get this deal across the line. Um, sometimes SD, uh, account executives are you know are involved after the close. In a lot of cases, they are not. Right. So they are that it really does depend by um, by company and also by kind of like the the motion that they are selling by. Now, once you've once you've signed on the dotted line, um, you know from a from a buyer's point of view. The journey has just begun because you need to. You've you've spent the money. It's now time to implement the solution, right? So you need to start doing the integrations now. Depending on how difficult this is, um, you might have you know you might have solutions consultants. You might have solutions architects who come in and integrate this. Actually, if you look at companies like Deloitte, Accenture, uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, that's a lot of what they actually do. My sister works at EY. Um, in their, you know, business consulting division, mm-hmm. and a lot of what she seems to do is SAP integrations, or SAP deployments, so it's, hey we, you know, we we have she was working at um, a very large supermarket chain, and it was, we're bringing a new warehouse online, right, so there's a whole lot of, like, software on the back end of, of bringing on a, a massive new, you know, food distribution warehouse, um, and so that's where a lot of those consulting firms are involved um, but, you know, Again, this like varies by organization, but you often have um, your like solutions architects, um, solutions consultants. They you know, they all have different names. Um, you also have your account manager um, mm-hmm. or customer success manager. Again, like these can vary by organization. Sometimes this is all one person. Sometimes the solution is. You have to download a Chrome extension and and log in and choose a password right like sometimes it's really easy other right. times actually like months of months of integration work um, and you know that account manager in some organizations is responsible for upselling you um, you know sometimes it's sometimes they're not sometimes they're just responsible for retaining you um, it really like varies by organization some organizations have very aggressive upsell. Um, you know, kind of approaches. So the idea is you land and you'll do say, a $30,000 deal. But the idea is we're going to do a proof of concept and then this is going to grow into like a $2 million a year account, right? Um, so it, it really varies by by organization. I feel like that I've made it more money by by going no no i
0: appreciate it it actually it helps illuminate how this all can be confusing but then how once you dig into the jargon like you were saying it ends up being a a language issue more than a competency issue so this is this is good um before we go any further i was curious would you be open to uh doing a twitter The
1: the technical side is a little bit yeah it was fun to try
0: not a problem. I'll go ahead with the rest of these questions that I've got for you. Um, so yeah, I
1: think it, think it might be too difficult, as all. Well. That's no problem. Um,
0: we're back on the river side of things. That was a there fun adventure. adventure. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, you gotta, you gotta so try these things. Yeah, exactly. It's I. It's a continuous process of failing up for me. Let me tell yeah, you, yeah. this has been. One tech nightmare after another, I have a whole microphone right here that I just can't figure out how to make it work. There's a soundboard back there that I'm still working with, you know, little upgrades as I go for sure. um yeah, so my question for you is since you said that you're in your experience, you know you went into it with a passion for the idea of ads and creative, and then you kind of learned that it wasn't your talent but leading the teams more was. If you could go back and save yourself the headache of putting the reps in, would you? with the knowledge you have, or would you still, if this makes sense, would you still go through it to get to the mindset you have now?
1: Um, I don't think, I mean, I, I don't really think about it. Cause I, it's it, like it, you, you can't change anything. Right. But um, I think it's also worth mentioning. I, I did, I didn't really end up working professionally in advertising at all. Like my first postgraduate job was in sales recruiting and I very much fell into that. Um, So I, I think, you know, when I, when I think about, um, college and when I think about, you know, if I were to do everything again, like the, I think the big thing that I kind of think about, you know, I live in, I live in New York now. And one thing that's kind of interesting to me is, is being around a lot of people who you know, went to Ivy league schools and, and that sort of thing. And I think the reason I, one of the reasons I went to the university of Waikato was I just didn't, I, I didn't have the biggest horizon, right? Like I, I applied to one other university, um, Called AUT up in Auckland, um, because they had a very similar like degree structure. But the idea of you know, I in my final year of high school, I found out about the scholarship. It was like a fully loaded scholarship to Duke University. It was worth like four hundred grand, right? That they'd give you an allowance, they'd pay pay for you to go to Duke for four years, and that was gotcha. awesome. But again, like I was, I wasn't very good at school. Right? I needed to know this at thirteen. Um, but, but no one had explained it to me, you know, my parents didn't go to college, but I think more importantly, one of the things that I've realized it and I, I kind of try and get this across to the people that follow me. It's like, you know, when you live in New York, when you live in San Francisco, when you live in LA, I'm, I'm not sure where we're about to you based actually. I'm actually about an hour outside of Chicago. Okay, nice. Yeah. I, I'm not sure what Chicago is like I've, I've visited, but I, I haven't spent any real time there. Um, when you're it's in the big place. cities in the US, you know there is like an entire class of jobs that are available to people that went to the right schools, right? And I think yes. um, I understand. In in New Zealand, like that's not really a thing. Um, you know, our former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern did the exact same degree as as myself from the exact same university, so it's kind of like it. You know, like it's, <laughs>
0: it's right. Just, well, I would say that's. That's honestly more classic quality uh, of a situation that you guys have going on there. There isn't such of an yeah such of a gap between the people who go to these super private elite institutions and then people who go to public institutions. There's there's this weird like you said well, disconnect here in the in the states where prestige kind of became elitism.
1: Yeah, I think the key thing there is there are no private universities in New Zealand. Like there are there are six universities or or thereabouts um you know it's a very small country there are five million people it, it would be like it would be like saying hey you know i'm i don't know how big connecticut is but like i imagine the entire country is connecticut like it's not you know it's, it's not
0: i think they're kind of the same size geographically yeah <laughs>
1: right uh oh no no new zealand's a lot bigger than connecticut oh okay but, um but but you know like that that's the point that i'm 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 making is like um it's a very small country. It's not. I don't think it's necessarily that it's more uh, fair. I think it's unfair in other ways and and unfair in kind of like hidden ways. But right. one thing I do like about sales um, is that sales is fairly egalitarian. I think in our you know in the world of corporations that we have today, in the way that corporates think about hiring people and the way that they think about promoting people and that sort of thing, sales is probably the most merit-driven of all career paths, um, at least the that that I can see, um, which is something I, I really like about it as an industry as well.
0: I can't think of another industry where so many of the jobs have limitless upward potential. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, it's. I think sometimes merit gets put in in different places. Like there are jobs where, you know, you go and you get your PhD to become a head of a lab of some kind, you know, in in organic chemistry or something like that, just because your education is it's front loaded as debt in those cases. I think that's still considered like you're working in your field before you're getting paid to work in your field. But there are a lot of industries where it's not like that sales. You're right. Someone can come in, get their feet wet, learn the entire industry and then just earn as much as they want by working as much as they want.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's in terms of like, I think in terms of, upward mobility and like income potential, um, sales is by far like the best bang for your buck. If you if you want to work for someone else and I, I don't think it's close, you know, um, like an enterprise salesperson can make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. They can crack a million dollars a year. And while, you know, if you look at like what a top partner earns at an investment bank or a law firm or a private equity fund, um, yes, those, be, those people earn more but also they often went to like Ivy League undergrads, Ivy League grad schools. They spent, they had a half a million dollar education and they worked 20 hours a week for 20, oh, sorry, 80 hours a week for 20 years. Right. right. I, think, I think if you work 80 hours a week for 20 years, you can probably make the same amount of money, frankly.
0: And I think that was kind of the point I was trying to make is that the, the ones that are less merit driven, they have such a longer burn to them is what I was trying to say. Whereas you can you can get the right offer in sales, and if the right person finds the right offer, they can crush ten-figure months in two years of training. Ten-figure months? Well, like in terms of, in, I mean, I I'm not in sales, so you could tell me if you're doing it's, better. It's, or I mean, you
1: can ten-figure. Isn't that like ten billion dollars?
0: <laughs> yeah. Or I'm I'm sorry. I apologize. I meant five-figure months. Oh yeah, yeah, five-figure months uh, in minimum. Yeah, thank you yeah, for five-figure
1: months. You should be able to get that by like your second year. That's right. what I was trying
0: to say, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas, I mean, someone in the finance industry, your first five years, you're going to be making, you'll start making like
1: $5,000 a month, but you'll stay making like $5,000 a month. Right. Unless you want to live in New York and work 80 hours a week. Exactly. Right? And and, and I think actually that's that's one thing that we don't talk about enough is if we, if we talk about like, let's just talk about this discourse, because I think it trips people up. I don't know if you've seen like um, lawyer pay in the United States, but it's really interesting, right? It's like, First year lawyer pay, and mm-hmm. it's what I think the term is bimodal distribution, which is essentially like you've got these two humps. Yep. So you've got like the majority of lawyers in the United States make something like sixty to $70,000. Not a lot. That, that, no, they make relatively close to like the median American household wage. You're not going to say, you know, and, and we have like these super distorted perceptions of how much people make um, because of social media, because everyone's always lying upwards. Um, but, you know, a lot of lawyers who didn't go to an Ivy League school, uh, who didn't go to like an Law or like a top 15 or top 20 school, um, they are making $60,000 a year, $70,000 a year, $75,000 a year. Uh, a lot of people in finance who didn't go to an Ivy League school, who don't work at an investment bank in the like M&A team, right? There are a lot of people who work at JP Morgan who are 24 years old and they make $65,000 a year. Um, sure. They don't, you know. They often work a reasonable number of hours, like fifty hours a week, sixty hours a week. They're not working a hundred hours a week, but they're also not making the big money. And we really don't talk enough. Like we don't talk enough about that. I think um, it, it's one of those things we like to gloss over. We like to look at the, you know, the maybe five thousand or ten thousand investment bankers. Per year, who live in New York, who live in Chicago, who live in San Francisco, who live in LA, and we say, "Oh, look at all those young people making so much money." it's say, like, "Yeah, right. there are ten thousand of those guys, and like three hundred thousand guys making fifty grand a year, working in Charlotte, right? Like keeping the, mm-hmm. the back end of all those banks, like operating, uh, working in like the suburbs of yeah. name your large metropolitan uh you know, city, um, and, and so again, like." When I think about sales, one thing I, I like to say to people is like, we have to keep that in mind because if you're going to ask for a you know for an income that is four x what the average American family makes, not the average American but the average American household, right? Um, yeah, there are going to be some strings attached to that because you also don't have a whole lot of debt, right? Like sales, I, I I I get people annoyed about this because it's true, but having a college degree is really important in terms of like technology sales. It, it, it Like I would, I would say if you can get one, right? Like most, most founders have college degrees. Almost all venture capitalists have college degrees. Like you're entering a world where people have them as the price of admission. The mm-hmm. nice thing about sales is they don't really care where your degree comes from. So don't go to DeVry. Don't go to the university of Phoenix. Like those are scams, but If you go to like a good state school if you grew up in tennessee and you go to the university of tennessee that's great if you grew up in north carolina and you go to unc i mean again great right like wherever you're from there is a good state school it doesn't cost a shit ton of money um Mm -hmm. and any like sane sales organization that is exactly what they're looking for they are looking for people who have okay grades you know like they're looking for b plus a minus type people who had good social lives who worked hard, who were part of a club, who played a sport. You know, you don't have to be like this D1 4.5 GPA, like giga Chad to get a job. You have to be a relatively well-adjusted person who likes to work hard and who wants to be rewarded for your effort. Um, And if you're socially competent, then the world really is your oyster for that.
0: Yeah, it's really true.
1: All these upper-class
0: industries rely on middle-class jobs yeah absolutely and anyone trying to break into the middle class all they need to do is target an upper class industry learn the kind of interpersonal skills in the sales industry subset to that upper class industry and then find um, an upper middle class job doing what needs to be done that the upper class folks
1: don't have the time for i know that's Mm -hmm. a little
0: bit uh diminutive but Yeah. yeah i
1: think you know in terms of just like make making a lot of money and and not spending a whole lot of time and you know in university not spending a whole lot of time acquiring student debt like it's really hard to beat sales and and frankly like it's you know you get a lot of the benefits of entrepreneurship without without a lot of the downsides you know yes you know it it is worth quantifying like it is hard to make 10 million dollars in a single year in sales. Uh, this was actually a point I was thinking about today and I was thinking about it yesterday as well. And I, I think I need to write a thread about this because I think it would be useful. I don't think anyone's articulated this. But the way I would think about using a recruiter if you're in sales is you know the best opportunities, like most of the time, don't actually come through recruiters, right? The very, very best opportunities come through networks. but you have to have a really, really good network to get in front of the very best opportunities, right? Again, like this is where going to an Ivy League school and that sort of thing can be really useful. But again, most of us don't have that, right? So one of the key goals as an adult who works a career, and the way I think about a career versus a job is a job is something you can pick up, something you can leave quite easily. A career is something that you you approach more strategically. It's, this is how I'm going to spend a lot of my life over the next 30 30, 40, 50 years, but when it comes to your career, the way I would think about a recruiter is we can bring you opportunities you would otherwise never see. And then, you know, if you're a client, it's exactly that same pitch, right? If you're a client, we can bring you candidates that you will never see otherwise, right? Like that's the whole point is if you are hiring a recruiter to work with you and you're looking for an account executive and they bring you a whole lot of people you've already talked to that you already know, well, they haven't done their job properly, right? Like the point of being a recruiter is that you see great people you would otherwise not see. And fundamentally, if you're a company that's gonna grow, you need to meet people you've never met before, right? Like Mm -hmm. everyone's got a limit to how big their network is, even the most talented network is. Um, But the way I would think about using a recruiter is we bring you opportunities you otherwise wouldn't see we can help you make jumps that your network might not be able to help you, you know, make jump, but also we can help intro you to your next opportunity where you are then meeting with the people who will take your, you know, your like your opportunity after that mm-hmm. into the stratosphere. And that's where, Like right. that's where you didn't need a recruiter. Right. And so it's, Oh, if I go and be an early sales hire, with this great you know with this great entrepreneur who's just starting out so he doesn't have the network or she doesn't have the network to hire so they use a recruiter we bring them someone they haven't ever seen you know you want to meet with great entrepreneurs you might not have the network that's where the recruiter comes in and makes this really important connection now you've been hired everyone wins the recruiter gets gets paid you get a new job they get a great new employee if you if you are a candidate in that position I would advocate like now is the time to think okay how can I ensure that this company is really successful and that the next opportunity I have is either me being shoulder tapped by the venture capitalist that funded this company to you know to put them in front of another portfolio company mm-hmm. it's me going out on my own and and you know maybe my old CEO wants to invest in me or how can I now expand my own personal network um, through this introduction that's been made and how can I really level up my network? I need to flesh this idea out a little bit more, but I think it's really powerful when you think about, when, when it, at least I think about some of the most impressive career trajectories I've seen, It very much is a case of of people doing this successfully. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about how NextVenture.co
0: is supposed to operate in that sphere then, because it sounds like you're kind of leading the ship but then you've also got a team that you've built around you, from my understanding. Yes.
1: Uh, no, it's okay. I, I'll be I'll be uh, building a team later this year, but at the moment, my my the actual way like I think about it is, I want to get really, really good at every part of like the agency piece. I've mm-hmm. been doing agency recruiting for about six years, and I co ran an agency for about three. Um. So I want to scale it in a slightly different way. Um. But when okay. I, yeah. When I scale it, so, it,
0: sorry to interrupt. So the, the you co ran the collective search then.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's right. So it okay. was, that it, was where my wires were crossed. Yeah. It was started a year before I joined. Um, and I worked there for two years, one year as an SDR one year as an account executive. And then the last three years I was a, um, you know, I was a, a co owner of that business. Yeah,
0: Managing partner.
1: Yeah. That, yeah. that I was, I was trying to remember the title. I totally understand. I've seen that title thrown around for a few different jobs. So, um, When you were doing
0: that, how much of your job was finding these new sales recruiters?
1: Um, actually, relatively small. Okay. I, you know, I, I think because one of the things that we did really well is at The Collective, we had a really good team culture. Um, we didn't have a huge amount of attrition. You know, you'd bring people on, but we, we didn't grow a huge amount. Um, but the people that joined tended to stay for a long time. So, you know, like there's actually something that, quality, think, quality. yeah, yeah, that, that's worth talking about as well, because some people have a real churn and burn attitude to hiring their team. Um, those people don't tend to win. You know, it, I think it's one of those things when you look at an organization, um, if you have like, if you have joined and you're not a fit and you get spat out quickly, that's fine. That needs to happen. That actually happened to me after I left the collective search. I right? went and briefly joined a bigger recruiting agency. I was there for about three months, and I was a terrible culture fit. Um, you know, so so that didn't work out. But um, the like once you get past that point, it shouldn't be. Oh, you're here for seven months, right? And I, actually, this is one thing I really dislike about how a lot of these companies are in Silicon Valley. But I think it's a general corporate view of things, which is being very churn and burn with your employees. It's, it's mm-hmm. one of those things I find kind of interesting, because you often have two companies that will look really similar, you know, they'll be in a similar industry, they might be a similar size. Um, but one has an absolutely like, fantastic employee culture, one has an awful employee culture. So Just the it's, ways it's... To handle human capital. Yeah, that's right. And it's, you know, I think it's how transactional do you want to be with your people? Um, I, I don't believe in just cuddles and rainbows. You know, there is a thing as performance management. It's extremely important in sales. But um, I've been in so many conversations with, you know, potential clients. And they've said, hey, we want to hire a whole lot of people. We want to make a lot of money quick. And then we're going to do the next thing. Those people never make any money. They are always awful Um It's really interesting. It's one of those things, like, it's kind of uh, wholesome that those people don't end up winning in life.
0: What kind of qualities would you say you guys or uh, other people should select for then to try and create that lower attrition, higher quality, small knit team, as opposed to the churn and burn? What would you say to be looking for, or what do you look for when you're finding those people to work with, as opposed to those people that you try working with and
1: then you know. Okay, so if, right, we're if we're we gonna talk on. about uh, identifying people, um, you know, to, to work with and and, work, and and avoid, I think let's just delineate the question: Are we asking this from a uh, how do you as a potential employee evaluate companies, gotcha. or how do you as an employer evaluate candidates? Because I think there's like there are two answers mm-hmm. to that. So let's start on the in-house side of it. How
0: do you select for people that you're going to work with inside your firm? and then we can secondary cover how do you select people for placement at a client firm
1: when you're doing your work right so how do i work out if this company is worth Start
0: worth- internal to what you're building now with next venture what are you planning to select for let's say for people who are going to be employees of next venture instead of being people that next venture helps fit with client help
1: you know um i don't have a good answer for that i think what okay. might actually be more useful is if I walk you through some of the selection that I use for the kind of companies that I like to recruit for, because I think that's actually, that that's actually a, a more useful question. Let's do it. Um, you know, so the big thing that I look for is, um, is this product actually solving a problem, <laughs> right? Like that's, that's something that I think about a lot because a lot of, I, I'll give you an example, right? So in my world, recruiting, there are companies that come out every 10 minutes and they say, we are going to automate recruiting. Now, what it, like is extremely apparent if you've spent any time at all in recruiting is the people who make these claims have never spent a day in their life recruiting before. They actually don't know what they're automating. And really what they are doing is they've found a technology and they're trying to like reverse engineer a use case onto it, right? So they'll say, hey, we're trying to automate recruiting because we will help you source a thousand candidates really, really quickly. Well, I don't want to talk to a thousand people, right? Like assuming I could get a thousand people on the phone. Right. Um, And more importantly, like that, like that doesn't solve a problem, right? Like LinkedIn does that. You just can be really, really sloppy with your search parameters, you know, to find a thousand people, but that like, that's not a problem that needs to be solved. People will say, well, we'll make the scheduling really easy. It's like, well, Calendly links aren't that hard and actually like three emails back and forth aren't the biggest pain point in the world either, right? So it's like, these are problems that don't really, like they don't burn, yeah. they don't actually matter. I'll give you like, there are two technologies in, in the world of recruiting that are actually good and everything else is kind of a joke. The first one is um, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is amazing. It is one of the best pieces of technology like in the B2B world because it is a self-updating database, right? Like This is why it is recruiters spend thousands of dollars. Like, you know, right. a recruiter license will set you back 10 grand um, per year, but it is like it is a self-updating candidate database that like that is so valuable, right? It's like it is so, so good because it's the source of truth where I know where you work because if you're still actively interested in working, then you've kept your LinkedIn profile up, like up to date. Right. So it's like this insanely, insanely valuable um, you know, tool. And and they they know it. That's why they charge like, you know, a, an, an egregious amount of money. Now where LinkedIn is awful is they do not like automation at all. Right. You can't you cannot schedule an in mail mm-hmm. on LinkedIn. You cannot create an email sequence on LinkedIn like it is so painfully manual, right? So there is a tool out there. It's called Gem, and Gem is like an email sequencing tool, very similar to like Salesloft or Outreach, but it is tailor made for people who use LinkedIn Recruiter and people that recruit candidates because unlike every other email software that is focused on, um, you know, is focused on finding B two B contacts, so it's focused on finding your work email address. Gem is focused on finding your personal email address, right? Which is great if, if you are trying to recruit people, but like that is, a, that is an example of like technology that has an actual use case, but
0: uh-huh.
1: a lot of technology, frankly, doesn't have an actual use case. And I think as, as someone who is, um, you know, who is looking for a new job, that is a question you need to ask. And, and one of the pitfalls that people fall into is they'll say, well, you know, we sold a $50,000 deal to, BMW or we sold a fifty thousand dollar deal to Home Depot or McDonald's. It's like, yeah, all of these companies have an innovation arm and they spend ten million dollars a year evaluating two hundred different solutions and five of them get the go ahead, right? Like right. You, you you can bring a use case and like try and reverse engineer like that onto a technology that exists, but it doesn't mean you're solving a problem. So that's the that's the first thing that I look for. Yeah. Um, the other really big red flag is raising too much venture capital. You now it's we've seen it really take off over the last few years, but like that is just a consistent thing. Like the more venture capital that typically goes into a startup, the more you should be skeptical. Um you know, some just some good numbers to like kind of think about. A ten to fifteen million dollar Series A, call it up to like twenty five million dollars. Oh, don't worry about it. $100 million Series A, that is a company that is way, 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 like it's just raised way too much money. Right. Um, $100 million Series B, again, same problem. Like you want to avoid these companies that have raised too much money. And that's like, that's a huge thing that I look for. And then it's really, do I like the person? Do I think they're a good, you know, do I think that'd be a good person to work for? But those are those are some of my key criteria that I look for. I think
0: in order to qualify for like an over $30 million Series 8 seed round of debt financing, you've got to have a market cap in the like at least a billion already. I feel like for it to be a reasonable qualification, you can't jump in there going, hey, we've gathered 50 million in debt to finance what we've got a market of. 35 million for or even even if the market's 250 million you're saying at most you've got like three solid years before you're grappling or cannibalizing market share Uh, so i I kind of get what you're saying where enough of the market needs to need this api not just want or be able to use it that there needs to be
1: a, a new like a wellspring of demand so one way to think about it and i think this is I'm going to give a little bit of a rant here, but if you think about a company that is raised at a billion dollar valuation, right now, if we think about what makes a company worth a billion dollars on the public market, it is public investors think that this company is worth a billion dollars. And there's generally like some correlation, uh, between the amount of revenue that that company has made and the, um, you know, and the market cap of that company. And it depends on the industry that you're in and that sort of thing. But if we just, For the sake of simplicity, say that for every dollar that that company sells per year, their market cap is is 10, right? So to be worth a billion dollars, you need to have a hundred million dollars in market cap. Now, you know, there are all these companies and they have raised money at insane valuation, like, I'll, I'll, I'll get like, you know, no basis uh, in EBITDA, no basis and even cash flow, no basis in sales. They're just based on selling the idea. Well, kind of, kind of, but like, I'll give you an example here. There was a company called bolt. They're still around. I think they raised at a, they've raised about a billion dollars, uh, okay. and they are like a one click checkout solution. And they've oh, raised, okay. a, they've raised it like a $12 billion valuation. And I think if you're going to go and join that company, you have to ask, even at a 12x revenue multiplier, is this company going to be able to make a billion dollars? I could see.
0: I could see the possibility. Like if they have a business plan that even has a targeted exit where they're selling to a firm like Visa in 15 years, you know what I mean? And that's the dream they're painting. But, but that's, that's
1: still a tough sell. Well, and here's the here's the second problem. That, that you might be right. They might be able it's to sell to in the people. sky, you know, well, you might be able to sell to these in 15 years. And that's, you know, we're, we're like, that might be able to happen, uh-huh. but that only gets you up to your last valuation round. Right. There's no actual upside, right? Like this is what people I think don't understand. It's like, you know, if you're looking at a company and they've raised it a billion dollar valuation or, and you know, the VP of sales is telling you, well, we're at $20 million in revenue. You're like, oh, that sounds really good. That's that's awesome. Yeah, you've got to raise $80 million, oh, Sorry, you've got to increase revenue to $100 million. Yeah. You've got to 5X your revenue just to get back to that billion-dollar valuation. right? So like, mm-hmm. before your equity is going to be worth anything, you have to go through like a huge amount of pain. Huge if- sales multiple, huge cost cutting. It's going to gut it to sell it at the end. Yeah, and so like it's it's one of those things where you're like, you are trying to build like this airplane, but actually what you're doing is you've got these wings and you're just trying to flap them. You know, I, I like I have this concept I call the um, I call it like the airport Hilton, uh, mm-hmm. concept, which is okay. You have to think for a moment, right? Imagine you are like the California pension fund, right, and you're like managing the pensions for all of these teachers in California. Um, you you know you're investing their money. Now you've got fifty million dollars that you need to deploy. Do you buy an airport Hilton or two airport Hiltons? Maybe. Um, do you buy a portfolio of McDonalds? Do you buy a commercial real estate, you know, property? Do you buy a multifamily property? Do you buy a collection of stocks, or do you buy five percent of this company? Right. And you need to. I think it's like important to think about this. Right. It's important to. Go into the world and look at, you know, if you're in New York, you can buy a 500, like, um, a 500 apartment building for like half a billion dollars, right? right. If, you, if you go on something like The Real Deal, um, they'll, they'll have some news. And so it's good to like just keep that as an anchor in your head and say, if I had a billion dollars, would I want two of these buildings or would I want this company? Right, because like sometimes you're like, yeah, this company is great. Like they're gonna crush it. Like I'd love to, I'd love to own this company. Right. if I had a billion dollars. Um, if I had a billion dollars. But other times, you know, there was an example. Uh, there was a company, and they raised, I think, at a 1.2 billion dollar valuation, and their product was a Lincoln bio. And you're like, get me the airport hotels. Yeah, absolutely. This, this is just not worth 1.2 billion dollars.
0: Yeah. Okay, I'm starting to see what you're saying. There's not just necessarily market cap for the industry. There's even market cap for their available market share that they could get. Because, it, like you talked about Netflix earlier, it's almost a natural monopoly after Blockbuster didn't digitize in time. You know, to start an online streaming service like that is a really ballsy move
1: in 2023, What's 2020. Moving the forward. the like, on- the only people that are doing it have extremely deep pockets, right? Like, right. You know, Disney is big enough that Disney they can afford to just like
0: that huge opportunity to cannibalize market share from Netflix and Hulu, et cetera. But it's because yeah. they're losing, they, they have an opportunity cost if they don't, because their Disney channels are starting to fade into obscurity just through obsolescence.
1: Yeah. So it's, you know, it, it is one of those things where you think about, ooh, yeah, like to go toe to toe with Disney, you've got to have pretty deep pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, which is yeah that's i get how that would work out to scale and so this the
0: airport hilton you know you could apply that to all of these different opportunities then if you're filtering for is it worth it to even work to place a, or a, a person with this client or is it better to tell this client hey you need to refocus on what you're doing because you're not going to be able to get your problem solved at the price you want it
1: well i mean it's like at the end of the day like uh, that's one of the things that I think about, right? It's like if you're if you're a company that's raised too much money, I don't really want to work with you. Um, a those companies tend to be pretty big. I prefer to work with founders anyway, so I kind of self-select out. But then B, um, it you know I can't feel great about selling a candidate on that opportunity because you're like there's no, you know, and and if I were to hire for that, I'd just be up upfront and honest and say like, hey. The equity I don't think is worth anything here. Reality check. If you're joining a company as employee 100 plus, your equity is a nice bonus at, at best. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, we, we can talk about the actual take home cash. For a lot of salespeople, um, that's, that's how they make the majority of their money. And actually, one point I'd like to flesh out a little bit more this year, I think I'd, I'd like to have more conversations myself with chief revenue officers in particular, um, is because it is so under, under-discussed under on Twitter, no one knows what they're talking about here. But one thing I find very interesting is when you make that jump from individual contributor, even to like director of sales, your on-target earnings as an you know, individual are essentially the same. But the amount of stock you can get, 5x overnight, right? Like 2x, 3x, 5x. So if you were getting $50,000 worth of stock a year, you're now getting two hundred and fifty k worth of stock in a year. And that, like, that really matters, right? And I think it's worth saying this explicitly because I don't think a lot of people have thought about this, but like, if you are in sales, if you enjoy the process of managing people, if you... Don't want to start your own business. Being a chief revenue officer can make you millions of dollars because, like at those very big companies, at the companies like Asana, at companies like PagerDuty, at companies like New Relic, those people are getting multi-million dollar stock packages, um, and that is that is worth saying very explicitly. Um, um, and that's a word that you. Part be- I like
0: to- oh, go ahead. Sorry, again. Part of what I like to talk about on this show in general is ways that the things that my guests talk about can be used in a broader perspective. So those stock options, something, I don't know if you're aware of this, you probably are, um, they, you don't have to sell them to use them. One of the big things that people say, um, is a constrictor for someone like Elon Musk is that his money, because it's tied up in equity, he can't use any of that wealth without selling it off. That's not true because of the way the modern credit system operates, You know, if you have equity like that and options that are really valuable, you can live off of them without ever having to sell them as long as the growth rate remains stable. It's when it gets volatile that they then have more trouble securitizing because you can't tell what rate it's going to grow at anymore. So when you talk about, you know, running out of room for growth or having to have obscene growth rates in order to hit, you know, seed targets, that can really manipulate the value of those equity packages, just like you were talking about the flip side of that is if you can find a stable position and become yeah a cro and then not have necessarily a flashy um job title all the time or a flashy you know rock star uh, position of influence in the company even though you're doing important work you can live quite nicely on a middle class salary
1: yeah no abs- absolutely i think i would say with anyone who wants to do those kind of like Financial engineering things. That's know.
0: more my field. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You need, like talk to a private banker. Talk to a talk to a good lawyer. Talk to a good accountant. Don't talk to me. Um, but you no, know, you're 100 percent right. There are some there are some very interesting things that that people can do, um, especially you know, especially I think once if you call it once your income like eclipses a million dollars a year, like you should be looking into things like this. Um, if you're making eighty five thousand dollars a year, don't worry about it.
0: So with the clients that you work with and the way that you set up contracts or work orders, I don't know what you officially call your operating agreements with a client. Um, are you typically setting it up where they're paying you a flat fee on the front end, where you're taking a percentage of the revenue or the net? Um, or are you do you have some kind of mix for how you set up these agreements when you source clients to place new representatives with them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the way that I work is, um, you know, I, I've I've seen a bunch of different models work, um, but the way that I like to work is doing very, very specific, um, and individual searches for like individual clients because I think one thing that people find frustrating is, you know, it because it, it doesn't work for anyone—the candidate, the client, or, uh, the company when you, as a company, you know, farm your rollout to like. 10 different recruiters companies will think oh we'll get 10 different recruiters we'll make them all contingent so contingent really means think of them like a real estate agent if they don't make a placement they don't get a fee and companies sure. think oh if i if i put this role out to four different you know or five different recruiting firms then i'm going to get 5x the effort no it's the reverse you're going to get the power of you know like that if you were getting 25% effort you know, from a like from a retained recruiter, um, you're actually getting five percent effort from a from a contingent recruiter. Because what contingent recruiters do um, at the collective search, I think the first two or so years we were there, we were contingent and we transitioned away from it entirely. Um, we dropped the number of clients we had in half and increased the number of placements we made. Um, so it, like it was great. We got rid of all of the terrible clients. We had this great book of business. And um, everyone got a far better, you know. Everyone got a far better. Right. Help. This is why I I don't work contingent. I'm not interested in working contingent. I don't think it works for anyone. But what what this means, right? If you're a if you're a company owner and you're thinking, oh, why do my recruiters suck? Well, what happens is you're like, well, we're gonna call up five different agencies and you tell them, you know, you try and screw them down on price, and then you've got these like. Often unreal, like this just tends to go unrealistic, like expectations of what you can get for someone. And you're usually being cheap on how much you want to pay them. And so you as a recruiter, um, when you're a contingent recruiter, you work like 15 to 20 jobs at a time. Now, recruiters cannot work that many jobs. We can work about four to five at a time and do it. Yeah, they,
0: you can't give your all to 15 different things. It's impossible.
1: So, so what we do is we look at like the top five, the ones that are easy to fill. And we say, I'm going to work on that. And if you're like, if you're number six, you actually get absolutely not like, we just don't even, we don't even do any work. On, right. On you're
0: not even looking at number six till number one through four are taken care of.
1: No, 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 no. We're not looking at number six. Like it, it doesn't matter. Like you just like, there's, there's no point. This is like this. And so these clients are like, well, why don't we see anything from our recruiters? You're it's just not
0: a good enough offer for us to work
1: with. <laughs> your search is too difficult and there's no ROI there. Uh-huh. And that just, that really doesn't work for clients, right? Like right. It's, it's terrible because you're like, I need to make this higher, so I need to find someone. So my whole thing is, um, if you work with the next venture, what we do is we sit down and we say, what are we looking for? We're looking for a you know, an account executive who was sold to uh, chief marketing officers and they've sold at, um, you know, they've, they've sold to chief marketing officers of brands that are based in New York. And our average deal size is, Fifty thousand dollars, and we want to pay this person two hundred twenty thousand dollars on Tiger earnings this year. I can tell you right now that person exists, right? I know, and I know how to find them. So, like, that's the sort of thing where it's like, okay, we'll sit down, like, we'll we'll work out what exactly we're looking for together. You know, it's a meeting; it's an hour long. Um, then we'll go out, we'll go and find a whole lot of people for you to look at. Um, you know, we'll look at twenty profiles together. We'll just make sure that everything's dialed in, and then we go out to market. We reach out to a whole lot of people. Um, we do a first call with any candidate. So Next Venture does first call with every every single candidate, and then we put the first like oh sorry, we put the four or five that we like the most in front of you. And so, as an executive, you are saving a huge amount of time, and you're only seeing very re- very relevant candidates. And then we mm-hmm. run a very efficient process. So, um, what does that mean? Like. For a client, I'll just walk you through a really recent search I did. It was with a seed stage company now based in New York, right? And the CEO, uh, she's been really, really busy. She's like, I just need to, I need to hand off sales, right? To like someone who's experienced, someone who understands the industry. Now, you know, we, we from starting the search and we hadn't worked together before, which is important because the, often that extends out the timeline. From starting the search okay. to the end of it starting, it was 55 days. Um, I think I talked to about twenty-two people. She talked to about five or six and wanted to make offers to two. Ended up making offers to one. That person accepted. Now is very happy. You know, and, 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 is, <laughs> and is starting his job there. Um, and she said to me, "Oh, like you reached out to what, like fifty people?" I was like, "No, no, no. I reached out to two hundred people. Right? Like the amount of effort is probably a lot more than you thought it was, mm-hmm. but." From her point of view, we talked for half an hour a week where she got a weekly update. We spent two hours setting up the search at the start, and then she did a round of interviews. Obviously, like they went to other members of the team and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> but in terms of like that executive's total time commitment was probably like 10 or 11 hours, and we got a really good outcome. And so like, that's, oh. the whole, that's the whole idea of how Next Venture
0: works. Yeah, I want to use kind of a golf analogy. You know, like an, an ideal caddy, says very little but picks the perfect tee tees the balls up perfectly and has the club ready that's needed so that the golfer can take one swing and make it exactly where they want it on the green you know the caddy's job is to know those technicals and put in that legwork of thinking about it while the golfer keeps the game face on and prepares themselves mentally for the pressure and so you guys in a way are this caddy without being you know beholden to the golfer you're you're an outside firm but it's it's really interesting how you guys tee up the right candidates so that the one that fits best can be chosen, and that none of them are being disqualified by the CEO because the CEO is not looking for can you do the job; they're looking for are you the person we want for the job.
1: That's that's right. So you know, one of the things that I I'm really big on is, and this is one of the reasons I don't believe in job applications, right? I don't believe outside of um outside of like. SDR roles or like that very entry-level role. Look, I don't think it's a bad thing to have them open on your website. I don't think it's a bad thing to build an employer brand, but I also don't think you're going to find talent there because what what you'll find is people who apply to jobs, they just apply everywhere. And so you'll have someone and they'll apply for a VP of data management. They'll apply for an enterprise account executive role. They'll apply for a facilities manager role and they'll apply to be an accounts payable clerk in the same day. And that person is entirely, like has none of those skills, right? Um, Whereas the people that the CEO talked to, they had varying degrees of experience, but they were all in that explicit industry. They were all in New York. You know, we knew where their comp was. We knew where they were in the interview process. So we've taken so much of that uncertainty out of the equation.
0: That's crazy. Yeah. I'm, I'm. I didn't realize that so much of the complexity could be taken out because oh, yeah. I, so I've, I've run a few of my own little ventures here and there, and I know how much of a pain it is to deal with any aspect of the databasing right. to, to tee up any real executive action I have to take. There's hours of what I call databasing, which is what you're doing in a wide variety of tasks. I, my term databasing is uh, a misnomer here. But like this, it's, it's mind boggling to me with just the smallest perspective on here to realize how much, like you really provide a lot of value to a busy executive, man. That's a lot of time saved. There's a lot of stress saved. And it allows, especially once you build those relationships, I'm sure you're getting return clients then who come back for their next position they need filled. And they ask you
1: just what you've got and who, you know, that might have what you've got. Like, I mean, that's the, that's actually one of the, the big distinctions between, like being a recruiter and being an average salesperson uh, that I've found quite interesting starting my own business is um, I actually didn't do a lot of business development at my previous role because so much of what I did was keeping clients happy. Right. And then you need to bring on like two clients a year. My top client at my previous company, I did 48 searches with them over four years. Wow. Yeah. That's so you're doing 12
0: instead of two.
1: Yeah, I I, yeah. I mean, you're I, knocking it out of the park. It's it's a failure to me. Um, it's a failure to me if you only do one search with a client, unless there's like a really good reason, right? We're only going to hire one person in the US because we're an international Well, company. right. That's fine. Or like where you were at
0: with Collective Search, you said that team was so tight knit at one point, it wouldn't have made sense necessarily to introduce somebody new, even if you guys had sourced that from a recruiting firm.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, I'm just trying to, you know, yeah. Program. Yeah. No, I, I mean that that's right. Yeah. So it's it's like, it's one of those things where, you know, if, if you are using a recruiting firm for your sales hiring and you feel like you have to talk to a different recruiter every time, give me a buzz because that is not how your life should be. This is a sales pitch. Uh, are, there, <laughs> are there any common metal blocks that you see uh, candidates
0: on the the hiring side encounter a lot or frequently? Like when you're training new SDRs, new CRMs, new AEs, what do you commonly see that they need
1: to wrap their heads around? Um, So I don't do any training, right? Right. And I'm for just for... for no, 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 no. It's, it means... it's, a, it's a good distinction because there are people, especially at the SDR level, who will... Find you sales talent, and they will also train that sales talent, right? So there are those people out there. It's worth making that distinction. That is not the role that I do. That is not the service that I provide. Mm-hmm. Um, the big mental block, and it's I wouldn't say it's a mental block, but it is a knowledge block, is okay. that if you think about most industries, if you're an accountant, if you're a nurse, if you're a lawyer, if you're a politician, right, like whatever your job is, the odds are you've got you know someone who's done it, you've got a family member or you've got a friend who did it, right? Like that's, that is actually like how it happens. It's it's like, there's some interesting statistics around this. Um, And, you know, even if you're not, even if you, no one in your family has been a doctor, we've all got a mental idea of like what a doctor looks like. We've got a mental idea of like what that career path looks like. And there are a lot of places that you can go to learn about the nuances of being a doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want to go into sales there are like there are resources out there but they are a lot less developed and most people don't you know most people don't know the nuances of sales so you know with i like posting on twitter that's a lot of what i'm trying to do is really just like say hey this is what i've seen this is like this is my experience i don't tweet about stuff that i don't know about i you may have heard me say this a few times like today in this conversation like if i don't know i i will i'll tell you i don't know i don't know what comp looks like in europe i don't understand how to sell in Asia. Like, I, I haven't touched any of it, but I do know how to hire venture, like for venture backed startups in the U S because I've done it a lot. And I think that's a lot of what I'm trying to do is like, let's make this really legible for people so that people can make better decisions and they can be a little bit more informed. And in a way, as you educate people about the
0: industry broadly and build kind of that social proof online, You're also proving that when you say you have a targeted niche in this industry that you know best, you're not just saying this is all I know. You're saying, no, I know this best on top of knowing all
1: this. Yeah,
0: I I can see how that would distinguish you over time into a more specialized firm.
1: Yeah, I mean that—that's my whole thing. You know, if you look, if you want to hire software engineers, if you want to hire chief financial officers, don't talk to me. If you want to hire salespeople. If you want to hire sales leaders, if you want to hire like sales adjacent people and you're a software company, I'm the person you should be talking to. All
0: right. Well, Sam, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, how would you like people to seek you out on social media? It sounds like you're kind of Twitter heavy right now.
1: I am Twitter heavy. So my um, my handle is Sam, uh, M-A-R-E-L-I-C-H. My website is yournextventure.co. Um, so go on there, find me on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, same name. Would love to love to chat with you. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Do you have any final words or are you happy? Uh, I'm pretty happy. I think, you know what? Here's, here's actually, I'll I'll leave you off with this one. If you're an adult, you know, I think making friends is like something we just super, super underwrite. Um, Make an effort. Put like, put an hour on your calendar this week to go and reach out to friends. Because I think that is like one of the highest quality ROIs that you can do. Um. One of the best things I did for my, my personal happiness was when I moved to New York is I started throwing these barbecues and beers. Uh, there's a rooftop in my apartment. I would book it out, I would buy hundred dollars worth of hot dogs and medallos and white claws, and you know and, and I've met so many friends by doing that, right? I primarily through my interest group, which is other New Zealanders in uh, New York, but I meet people, I invite them along, and I've made so many friends like that. You mm-hmm. can do the same no one is going to build your friendship like group for you as an adult you need to focus on it i i i'm like i'm this is like one of the other things that i'm super passionate about is like especially if you're a man like men we are so bad at this it is like one of the best things we can do for our mental health for our enduring happiness like frankly just to make life better start events make friends invite people and get active online like don't scroll twitter Start talking to people. I talk to people every day, like on the phone, on video calls. This is why we're talking. is because we actively engage on Twitter. Like social, social network, you know, social media. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is what I'll leave you with. Go out and make some friends. We're about to have a beautiful summer. You know, it's going to be so much better with some friends. Get out of the house.